Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Back to the Future is over. What the hell is a gigawatt? Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. It worked! It's a flying saucer from outer space! Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. And if you do, could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. For crying out loud, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... <laughs> can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. Our next big franchise, Andy, is Back to the Future. Oh, here it is. Oh, Back to the Future. You know, part of the challenge that we have is that we're, with this big series thing is that all the movies have been talked about a lot. So how the, how the hell are we going to do anything different on this show? Uh, I think we just call it quits right here. We loved it. Thanks, everybody. Celebrate the works of Eric Stoltz <laughs> and move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eric Stoltz. Poor Eric Stoltz. I'm glad he still managed to have some form of a career. Oh, Eric, poor, poor Eric Stoltz. He was paid out, man. He was paid out. But uh, here's yeah. the thing. As a young actor, yeah. do you want to be paid out and say, thanks, we appreciate your time, but you don't work? Or do you want to actually be in one of the the highest grossing film of the year and, and you know, kind of have that nice jumpstart to your, your own career? What do you, what would you prefer? Well, you know me, I would absolutely take the payout. <laughs> I, I would just go do other stuff. All the all the payout and none of the risk, none of the creative risk. Yeah, put sign me up. I'm I'm down for that. No. I think it is uh it's interesting just to look at his filmography because obviously what else came out in 1985 for Eric Stoltz is Mask. Like, he was not in danger of losing his career after what I'm calling the Back to the Future longest audition ever. Well, you know what I hear the problem was with with his performance in Back to the Future is that he wouldn't take his mask off from mask. Right. Right. It was very odd. It, when and he people had were to... like, this character is named Marty, not Rocky. Yeah. And he couldn't. He was so in the part. He was yeah. in the part. Yeah, that's, that's what they that's say. What I mean, I he's just actual... such a meth. He's so method. Yeah. yeah, that he never took it off. Yeah, that's true. I, I, feel, I hear that he still hasn't. Not, that's not true. He's still, <laughs> he's still on them. I wonder what Eric Stoltz looks like. <laughs> uh, but you know, he ended up. He ended up fine. 
He did, but he didn't have well, and but I'll say he didn't have the career that Michael J. Fox did. That being said, I don't feel like he ever was the type of actor who was looking for the type of career that Michael J. Fox had. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, he's he's taken so many interesting kind of, you know, smaller roles, indie films, that sort of thing that I feel like the sorts of things that he does, I feel like it, it, it more fits perhaps the vibe that really Eric Stoltz ended up kind of uh being anyway and so i I don't feel like it ended up being an issue a hundred percent a hundred percent so that's eric stoltz chat check that off with back to the future check that off the list all right uh i'm i am also excited to watch this movie to have watched this movie and as a part of our big series franchises uh year to watch parts two and three over the subsequent two weeks back to the future this is one of those trilogies that I, I find it very easy to just watch the first film, but I also really enjoy, like, once I put the first one on, I, I get really excited about the prospect of watching the other two. I just I genuinely enjoy this whole trilogy. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think what we're going to need to talk about uh, is the the course of how they use time. This is one of the movies... Uh, one of the franchises that we actually, my friends and I, in in our, the days of our youth, our youth, youth. Uh, edited uh, a, a lot of it together on VHS, a terrible VHS in chronological order, before the days of nonlinear, <laughs> we're swapping tapes and creating a, a chronological version, a massive chronological version of this movie. And it's, it's not as satisfying to watch as you might think. So you basically start with almost the entire Back to the Future Part 3. Mm-hmm. And then you jump into the fifties, and then you do some cross cutting between. Um, well, how do you handle the two timelines of nineteen fifty five, though? Or no, nineteen eighty five. Once you get there, I don't even remember. I was like nineteen, eighteen. Yeah, I don't remember how right, we handled that. Probably clumsily. Yeah, <laughs> well, clumsily, and I'm sure. I, I'm sure lazily. I'm sure by the time we got through, like most of the of of the fifties, <laughs> when we get into part two, or part, you know, it was it's just you know maybe we should just settle in and watch the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we doing this nonsense? Let's just watch it. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, we should say uh, Back to the Future at the time of its release was rated PG, and that is for some mild uh, sexual assault in a car and a little bit of violence um, and mild profanity. All right, Andy, Back to the Future. What are the big questions about Back to the Future? How did you approach your watch of this movie this time? Big questions. My, my first big question for you is time travel. Because I feel like <laughs> begin. <laughs> I feel like in uh, Back to the Future, uh, they they set up time travel, and it certainly kind of extends into the following two films. The way the time travel works, and I feel like it has become, you know, one of the one of the methods of time travel that ends up being kind of poked fun at in things like the Avengers films when uh, they're talking about time travel, and uh, you know, and uh, gosh, I can't remember. Is it Paul Rudd who gets upset that like, wait a minute, so Back to the Future is is full of crap. Like they, they like the whole concept of what how time travel works is such a um, kind of a convoluted thing, and that's what I think is 
I don't know. I, I find it so fun and I love the way that it works in this film. And I enjoy the way that uh, we'll certainly talk about in like, especially the next film, how um, Zemeckis and his team really kind of amp up the, the time travel and what you can do when you're time traveling and how it affects things and what gets affected. It's definitely not so much the, the butterfly effect um, on any minute scale. It really requires some fairly bigger things to happen in order for things to get shifted in in different directions and stuff and so so it's fun to watch and it's interesting to see how how the film kind of plays out with the time travel uh and everything but that was my first uh kind of thing that i thought was worth talking about is just the the notion of time travel and how it works in this film uh how does it work for you well i always i'm I'm always uh really surprised when i watch this movie and they switch to the picture and watch the people in the picture fading out. Right. The picture and the itself is being revealed. <laughs> Eventually, it's like, who was taking this picture of nothing yeah. back in 1985? <laughs> exactly right. Or just legs. <laughs> and it just uh, that is, it's stunning to me how stupid that is. And yet, more stunning than that is how easily I am swayed to believe it in the context of this movie. And I think that's one of the things that works really well in the movie, that they've set up such a fantastical universe of, of just these characters and the science, the air quote science and the, like all of the stuff going on that by the time you get to the photograph, he's already traveled through time and it is. Um, and so I'm I, I buy it. I buy it. That's one of the gifts of this movie is that it's it's got this sort of childlike sense of time travel that feels like, sure, it should work that way here. And I'm OK with it. It never takes me altogether out of the movie. It's just something to chuckle at and kind of move on. And I think that's one of the things that this movie does very, very, very well, is maintain that childlike sense of wonder at the, quote, science. I think they do that well. They set up their rules for time travel as far as how it works, how a photo, how if things aren't quite going right, yeah, you're going to start to disappear. You know, things like that. It's it's kind of fun the way they set it up. And then the way they really When his own up, hand starts to disappear in the end, that creepy hand that comes up in front of the green screen that's supposed <laughs> to be his, that now shakes me. Clearly, like his whole body, like what else is disappearing? Because he collapses, he can't play the guitar anymore. Like are his internal organs starting to disappear yeah. like what's what's actually happened his liver went first <laughs> i just i can't like it's now it looks like he's distant from the camera and the hand comes up like this he's like watching his hand and it's way too it's way too large for his body it, the pick hand so it well and it just also this is you know uh, at that period i mean ilm was doing the effects uh, but there are some moments like that where it clearly like that even at the time i've always been able to tell well that's just a, a different hand it's it's like on a different shot so that they could do this fading out thing it's like it always has looked um an artificially put together moment well you can see the fringe around the fingers like it's it just looks unfinished and that was something that was something that i i read that i did i didn't know that this was this was one of those movies in you know circa 1983 84 that um, that was in such a time crunch that some of the effects were were, were arguably unfinished and uh, that they actually had to cut around some of these sequences that they were really working the the effects teams hard to make. This Wait work. a minute, Pete. Are you telling me the film industry forces the visual effects departments to work harder and faster than they actually have time to do? 
Shocked, I tell you, shocked. Get me to a fainting couch, Andy. What? <laughs> what's what's what? Perhaps is the, is the most surprising, although shouldn't be, is that this was 1985 and we were still having these issues. It's like it's Which always is why I thing. bring it up, right? Yeah, Let's yeah. just make sure that everybody knows I'm bringing it up because we're still having this conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. It, so. it, it never goes away. It's the, yeah, it's frustrating because in so many ways, it's the nature of film production. It's it's these people who are trying to get these things done, and they always want more. They always want better. They always want it to be as good as possible. And what it means is a lot of people are having to work harder, faster, longer hours trying to uh, to get this stuff done. And it's so much of film is figuring out stuff that's never been done before, and so that's the, that's part of the challenge is like how can we make this actually happen how can we and what the big challenge i heard was that they actually were sending this car back in time that's right i mean they had real science to back it up i i think this is you know part the the bigger argument writ large we're not going to get all into that detail but the the biggest argument is that at this time they were making this movie the folks at ilm were legit magicians in in like pop culture like they were creating things like you say that haven't been done before and we're having this argument now because so many of the people who are still legit magicians feel commoditized and that means it's it's a changed public opinion around what they do. And I, I think that's that's part of why um, we're st- having a different kind of, of conversation right now. Rightly so. Keep having those conversations. But this movie, they were trying to do things, as you say, that have not been done before and uh, racing to get it done. It's it's great. I think what what ultimately came of it was great. Just to say what else ILM was working on in 1985, The Goonies, Cocoon, Explorers, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, Young Sherlock Holmes, Out of Africa, and Enemy Mine. Young Sherlock Holmes, there's hardly anything going on in that. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is I, like, when I read this list, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, Out of Africa. What were they doing in those two films? (laughs) Out of Africa, it actually is all Robert Redford has been completely face replaced. You didn't know that, but it was it was actually Eric Stoltz. I heard they actually filmed it all on a back lot in Hollywood. They didn't actually <laughs> take, step foot out of the country, out of L.A. <laughs> That's right. It's all in the park in in the in Back to the Future. That's right. Uh, okay, so that's that's what was going on. That so I think where did we start? We started with time travel, and we got to special effects and weird hands. Let's go back to time travel, though. One of the things that I like so much about time travel in this movie and that they made a conscious effort not to uh, not to do is not to make time travel the uh, outcome of some malicious giant corporation, but to make time travel this sort of um, accidental discovery of this individual wackadoo scientist. And I think that is a pivotal change in the story from the from conception to what we end up seeing that makes the movie that they have an intimate personal relationship, friendship, these two people. And we don't have to deal with the narrative of big conglomerate, uh, you know, maniacal corporations. And I, I think that that is one of the things that gives this movie such, I, to me, staying power is that because the heart of the movie is in that relationship and not the wackadoo science. It's just fun and funny. 
And it's a cool DeLorean. And that's, I think, the other thing that they do well is, and it's funny listening to them talk about it on, on, on the behind the scenes, how they were initially talking about, well, maybe it's made out of a refrigerator and they're trying to come up with and ideas. they have to drive to, it around on a and, truck. And they're like, what, what could we do? And the whole, but then they're like, well, if we do a refrigerator, we don't want kids actually getting into refrigerators, you know, and causing these uh, potential issues. So they quickly moved off of that. But it's funny trying to think, okay, if you're going to do a time machine, you want it to be something mobile. And I was like, oh, that's, that was kind of a cool way to kind of come up with it. And then, of course, the DeLorean, which became, for, for a car that ended up, I mean, it was, it was so cool to look at and everything. But, uh, you know, there's a, a whole story with DeLoreans that we don't need to get into. But it was like such an iconic look to make this time machine out of this car that was very cool in 1985. And it has those cool doors that open up and just everything about it was, was so neat that it ended up feeling very futuristic, even though it was very 1985. And that's, I think such an interesting thing that they do and they pull off with the time machine and um, by using the DeLorean. And also I thought it was very smart to kind of tie into this whole issue with plutonium and, and kind of the nuclear stuff going on at the time. And, and that also kind of sets up a, a kind of an overarching part of the story about uh, the idea of learning what happens in the future and, and actions that you may take that change that and the whole uh, kind of transition in thinking that Doc Brown goes through when he decides to tape that letter back together, read it, and then put on that bulletproof vest in 1985. The thing about the DeLorean is interesting. You're pers- you're, the way you're presenting it, I think, is interesting because I think already by now, The car, like part of the gag about the DeLorean is that it looks cool, but it's already a remaindered automobile. It's not the classiest sports car you could you could buy. I mean, DeLorean was all the company was already bankrupt. And like at the time this movie came out, like they it feels like they chose the DeLorean because it was already the brunt of a joke. And that this was like strapping all this crazy stuff to the back of it was the only thing they could do to make it to to like to do with it and and that doc brown individual scientist and wackadoo would be able to get his hands on a delorean in 1985 but probably not another sports car well and i guess it depends on on how much you knew about cars as a kid because when i saw this in 1985 i was not tuned into like the history of DeLoreans and stuff it to me was just a cool car you were just like going doors yeah. yeah i was just like that's a cool car and uh, you know that's absolutely what's what i would want to have my time machine look like something that looks like a cool car that has kind of this futuristic feel to it like i wouldn't have known about all of that history of the car and everything and so i mean i don't know i i just thought it it looked like a more futuristic car than if they picked like a Lamborghini or something like that. You know, it just, it, there's something about this car that it's silver, the doors go up. Like it just, it felt more futuristic than those other cars that, that felt more of the time, I suppose. Yeah. I, mean, I you know, I mean, it's, it's not like, I mean, how much did you know about Delor? Did you go, Oh, well that car is so old already. No, I didn't. But I saw this with my dad who, who was, who, and I think that's probably part of it. Like I remember learning about the story of DeLorean from seeing this movie. Like my dad thought this was hysterical because he had followed John DeLorean and like 
you know, all of the craziness that he was involved in and the drug trafficking and all that craziness because that had played out years before. So when this DeLorean shows up and he pulls the cover off and it's a DeLorean time machine, my dad's in hysterics in the theater in this movie. And so we had that that conversation very early. And I'm right with you. Like, I'm sure I'm looking at this car and thinking that is uh very, very cool. And I should have one. And I, I, you know, I just want to say that I think that using a DeLorean, the joke is was not for us as kids, but was for my dad, like was for the adults seeing this movie and getting it probably because it was that they didn't make it out of a Buick. You know, that wouldn't have been fun. Maybe a LeSabre, <laughs> maybe a LeSabre would have been fun. Or a family station wagon. Yeah, right. The family truckster. Mm hmm. So, have you ever been? Have you ever been in a DeLorean? Mm -hmm. I have. Nice. Uh, they're very small. Yes, I, I was in one felt... as well, and it 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 very they're they feel very compact. Yes, they're very very compact. I wouldn't want to own one. And I remember <laughs> thinking these doors are stupid. Like in hindsight, they're stupid because once I'm sitting down, I couldn't I couldn't reach the little strap that's hanging down. Like it felt like why would you make a door like this that once you're sitting in the car you can't actually reach. <laughs> the other uh, well the other celebrity car that i was in was at universal star uh, studios i got to sit in kit and have a conversation with kit so oh that's cool nice 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 yeah so those are my two big cars okay the delorean was not a stage delorean this was a real like a neighbor's delorean <laughs> yeah, right. Like, got, like, yeah, right yeah. And that's what, it, yeah. I, I had yeah. one on a project where we were, it, the whole gag was it was, it was a, a tech guy who was driving around in a, his own DeLorean. And yeah, so, you know, they're fun. Yeah. They're fun little cars. And, and obviously yes. they're very much collector's items now for people because largely this film. Yes. Yeah. And the drugs. People are buying used DeLoreans to see if there's cocaine <laughs> in the door panels. <laughs> Oh, so the DeLorean is is awesome. It's an awesome uh, use. I love that it's constantly breaking down and they can't get it to start. That's I think that's funny. And of course, we get the iconic flux capacitor. How long did it take you to cement the words flux capacitor in your headcanon as a thing that makes time travel happen? Uh, it was like as soon as this movie happened, <laughs> it was a thing. It's like, you know, is your flux capacitor fluxing? Yeah. You know, it's uh, it was yeah. a thing, and I, I it's just it, yeah, it's amazing how this film took some some strange things like that and just kind of turned it into something that feels so natural in the world of time travel, like his little console, like everything about it feels like it all makes sense in the world of time travel. And of course, you're going to need a flux capacitor, and you're either going to need the place for the plutonium in the back, or you're going to need the little uh, machine that the you know they get in the second one or the end of this film i guess yeah, to trash compactor yeah yeah exactly <laughs> to put all the food into the personal fusion device exactly exactly so um and, and the 1.21 gigawatts i mean that became such a key part of this whole thing and and like for so many years it's like you know what is a gigawatt and it was one of those things where i was just like i don't i don't i don't know it's just a weird science sort of thing but i, I guess it's a gigawatt is a billion watts and so you got to hit a lot. And so I, I don't know. I it, it was just it all became part of uh, so, so believable in this world of how they make time travel work. And I, I don't know if that's just the nature of Christopher Lloyd's sensibilities is how he's explaining stuff as this kind of scientist who's coming up with this. But I, I end up believing all of it. It all makes sense in context of the movie. 
Yeah, I think it does. And I, you know, I think part of the the world building starts at the very beginning. And one of the things I didn't remember in this in this movie was the opening, uh, the opening sequence. I didn't remember it as well as I should. Uh, the The opening title sequence comes up over the ticking clocks, and we have the Back to the Future in the bold, like you know, perspective, you know titling going into the into the distance the iconic the iconic writing for the title right? yeah the the logo type and and there's no bombastic music or flourish normally when you have big type like that like it comes with a whoosh and instead it's just kind of the quiet uh ticking clocks and then we get the clocks and we get the all of the clocks so many clocks the pan across the food the robot sort of um rube goldberg machine that is you know the the lab that we come to find out is is the lab and we slowly meet marty as he comes in uh we see his feet and the skateboard and we see all of these things that are building the world so quickly all the way to the ridiculous like he comes in marty and he plugs in his guitar and flips all the switches to the ridiculous speaker and amp setup that is in the room and he does one chord one power chord and blows the place up that is I think, exceptional world building for this cartoon wonder universe that we're supposed to buy. And it it strikes me as we're buying 1.21 gigawatts and we're buying the time machine in the DeLorean and we're buying all of the crazy stuff that happens later kind of is because of this stupid amp that that is like if this amp can exist in this world, then so can a time traveling DeLorean. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I think all of that makes sense. And I think it's an interesting setup for the film. It, it always reminds me of Geppetto because Pinocchio has a very similar thing with Geppetto's wall full of all these clocks that all are ticking and and keeping uh, Jiminy up at night and stuff. And it's just it's one of these things where I see all these clocks and I always instantly go back to Pinocchio. And I know like that film and kind of those early Disney films were big things for like Steven Spielberg and Zemeckis and stuff. So it's it makes perfect sense that that would be some form of a nod. And I suppose if you're looking back to somebody like Geppetto, he also kind of looks like Doc Brown. And I think if you look at Geppetto, there's like an element of mad scientist. I mean, here's this toy maker who's like, I'm going to make him and he's going to turn into a real boy. I mean, I know that's not really what his intentions are, but still, like he is an early version of a Doc Brown. So I can see that. And you're building this world with this guy and you, you with the clocks, with the, uh, I mean, it's a great setup because you get the clocks, you get the, the mad scientist elements of like all of those silly Rube Goldberg things like the, the toast machine. And, and, and it's, it very much also reminds me of gremlins and any of these guys who come up with these things that never quite work. Like the toast keeps popping up, but it's incredibly burned and the dog food is working, but you know, obviously the dog's not there to eat it. So it's just dumping dog food continuously on, on the floor. And and there were a couple other things that don't seem to quite be working well. Uh, the TV turns on and you get a, a news story of the missing plutonium. And yeah, and then the introduction of Marty. And so the way all of that is handled so fluidly over a couple minutes to kind of set up the world of this scientist who's doing some crazy things, missing plutonium, and this kid who 
you know, comes in, he's a skateboarder, and instantly his first thing that he wants to do in the morning is to crank it up to 11 and play this giant speaker. And so it's it's such a simple and effective way to kind of give us character and world building in just a couple minutes. I mean, it's it's just perfect. And to your point about the fact that we don't have music, I mean, considering how prominent and powerful Alan Silvestri's score is in this film, I think that's um, a, a, you know, a bold way to also start it where you're a very confident filmmaker. You don't necessarily need that to kick things off. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that is the, the, the big point here about the music because the score is iconic as iconic as the other bigs from the eighties. And uh, the fact that they didn't like, they chose to open on ticking clocks, uh, it, which is, you know, again, such an homage to, to time, like uh, setting us up that we're thinking about time in many different ways. And then doc calls and says, we're exactly 25 minutes the clocks are exactly 25 minutes behind. I never quite understood why he chose to do that. Was it that because he was already <laughs> experimenting with the flux capacitor and trying to There's there's just it, there's no reason for that because uh, he could have just had them all going off at eight o'clock. Hey, they all went off exactly at the same time. But no, it's it's they're all exactly 25 minutes. It's nonsense. The whole thing with that is just Marty's late for school, which is I mean, that's just a setup for kind of what feels like a common issue with Marty is a lack of paying attention. I mean, he still had to skateboard across town anyway. So why did he even bother stopping in docks, you know? Especially, I mean, if he believes that the time is seven, uh, he gets there, What I think the clock's are about 7.55 or so, right before he does his whole thing. And he's supposed to be at school at 8, maybe? 8.15? I don't know. It's yeah, like, is he right. coming just to hit this one chord and then leave? Like, it was he planning on being to school on time? Like, I don't know. The whole thing is set up in, in just kind of a nonsensical way. But I, but I buy it because I'm buying into who this character is. He's never quite completely paying attention to everything uh school wise he's focused on his music and stuff and um yeah it's it, it works well it does work i just i this time was the first time i actually stopped to think why does he say exactly 25 minutes was do you think there's even a remote possibility that doc is is testing the time travel thing and and 25 minutes was the integer i don't know it doesn't make complete sense to me. I suppose in some way there's an element that that would make sense, but it really feels like when he does his test with Einstein that that's the first time he's actually fully used all of yeah. that stuff. Um, so I suppose there could be some capacity of it. I just I just feel like it's it's purely a screenwriter's tool just to make Marty late. Well, I think that Einstein is the first living subject. I I think he's probably been testing this. That's why I bought into that earlier, that he was so excited about it. Now he's ready to send Einstein through time. Obviously, this is, we're going to need to litigate this for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But I mean, but it's a great setup. And so, and that's when we get to meet, we get, we go to school and the music kicks off. And we should say at this oh. point, as Marty leaves, we are not listening to Alan Silvestri's score yet. We're in the Huey Lewis uh, zone of this film. Fantastic, fantastic um, Huey Lewis in the News um, songs for this film that work incredibly well. Um, were, were you a Huey Lewis fan before this, after this, because of this? Where does Huey Lewis fit into your world? 
I think I already was a fan of Huey Lewis. I I devoured the his. I think I it was really just the sports album, right? Do you remember sports? I had the I had the record of that, uh, and that was the one that had uh, what was on that one? Uh, if this is it, uh, I want a new drug. Uh, Heart of Rock and Roll, I think, was on that one. Um, Heart and Soul, like it, it had all of the huge, huge hits. Like that's how you I knew Huey Lewis, and that came out before this movie. Some like 81, 82. That was 83. 83. So a couple of years before. So that's how I knew Huey Lewis. That was the only thing I had of Huey Lewis. And then this movie. So one, to open on that track. uh, And two, uh, to see Huey Lewis cameoed in the gym during the tryouts uh, was I it was like. I don't know if it was the first great cameo that I remember, but it was a great cameo because it was a uncredited person from another field that I already knew and was able to recognize. And in 1985, that was still kind of a rare thing for me. And so it was it was a big deal. What about you? I was never really a Huey Lewis fan until like after this movie. And I started listening to I, like I never had an album. I enjoy all the songs that you mentioned, like I enjoy them. It's just, I, he wasn't, he, like the group wasn't somebody that I followed. I don't think I would have been able to pull him as uh, the cameo until somebody told me, but it's just, it's one of those things. Like I, I do find their music incredibly enjoyable and the, the, was it just the two songs for the film are great. Like they're such classic songs. And like this soundtrack was one of the first cassettes that I had. And I listened to all the time. Like it, just it was just a fantastic soundtrack with uh you know aside from Huey Lewis uh we had Lindsey Buckingham and Eric Clapton on it and it just uh, plus kind of some of the 50 songs like I just I had such a great time with that soundtrack I listened to it all the time and um probably one of the you know the early doses of kind of that Alan Silvestri because the soundtrack the just the score I don't think was released for Gosh, till two thousand nine, I think. So, so whoa, like, yeah, it was. Really? Yeah, it it had one track. It was just the uh, Back to the Future kind of theme on the album, on the kind of the soundtrack. But that was it. So, wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. No, that's a that's that is a huge part of this movie is just how good the music is, and not just the score, but all of the the needle drops, the concert stuff when they're at at the the under the sea dance. I think it's I think it's all great. Uh, and it was, um, you know, everything, everything about this is is great. And I even think uh, Michael J. Fox's air guitar and and performative stuff is actually quite good. Like, I think he he looks good playing. Apparently, he did learn how to play Earth Angel, but, you know, only briefly because his hand started to disappear. So that was actually uh, as good as he could play. <laughs> That was about it. Yeah. yeah. Thank God his hands started to disappear. Yeah. That's right. Uh, no, it's so. the music is great. And the, just the Huey Lewis stuff is so iconic. And when the power of love kicks on right there at the beginning, as he's like, oh, I'm late for school. And he, and then you get so much of the character as he's like on the skateboard and he's grabbing onto cars and like that became such a, such a thing. And I tried it once and it didn't go nearly as well as it went for Marty. No. Uh, and <laughs> Let's just say it's, uh, yeah, it's not a good thing when cars are going faster than they go in movies. Uh, So you learn your lesson the hard way, I guess. 
You know, I I want to uh, I want to talk about uh, there's uh, Brian is bringing something up in the chat room. If you're a member, uh, nextreel.com slash membership, you could uh, join us for a live stream of the show and you can comment as we talk. And Brian's bringing up something in the chat room that I think is a good question. Uh, is Marty supposed to be a good musician? I have thoughts. What do you think? I think he's fine as a musician, but I do think that he's, you know, a young kid who's pushing uh, his band to do kind of bolder and and louder stuff. And you got to get a sense of kind of like where he's wanting to go with it at the end of the dance sequence toward the end. Um, You know, I I don't think he's like, he's great. I think he's, you know, he's a high school musician level musician, but I think it's... um, I think it would have been fine for him and his band to play in the talent show. <laughs> Let's just say. I don't know. I I think he is. I think that's part of the story. Like my take on it is that he is like when he cranks up Johnny Be Good, he's quite good. He's he's quite good. Better than a high school level mu- musician generally. But I think that's the joke. Like part of the joke of Marty and his music is that he is this is another example of Marty's aspirations being wildly out of time. Like he doesn't fit in 1985 and he goes back in time in the 50s. He doesn't fit there either. So where does his music fit? And I think that's an unanswered question in the movie. He's like either too progressive or too hard or whatever, but it's an unanswered question. So I actually think he is set up as being a a competent musician that hasn't that that is is in search of an audience and he hasn't found it and in two times and I think that's the that's part of like as a musician like that's the that's the heart sinking feeling of ah he still doesn't he still hasn't found it he almost finds it in the fifties he almost finds it your kids are gonna love it but he he just he just pushes it too far because he doesn't know whose audience is. That's my take. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, you're at that young age and he's trying new things and it's just clearly not ready for people. So, yeah. So, uh, okay. Doc Brown. Uh, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Do you know he was 47 at the time he was filming this? Yeah. Crazy. I, I, we were talking before the show. I went and watched uh, Nobody because he's in it. He plays, <laughs> plays Odenkirk's dad in Nobody. And I'm telling you, he could go back and play Doc Brown right now today. <laughs> that guy, he's been, he's, he's, he's been Doc Brown all his life. He really has. It's, it's, what's great about him is that he clearly has a, a fondness for the character. And I'm sure he loves the checks, but it's like not just like Back to the Future, but he also, uh, did like the, uh, the whole trilogy, but he also did like the, the ride that was at Universal Studios for a while. And he did, I think he was one of the people who came back for the, the animated show that was done and stuff. And so it's, it's like, it's him and Biff, I think are like two of the people who kind of have continued to uh, kind of enjoy reprising their roles time and time again, which is, I think an awful lot of fun just to see, just to see them involved. Answer me straight up. Are you looking at his IMDb page right now? Please don't do that. I'm not. Okay. Give me his top four IMDb game for Christopher Lloyd. Okay, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. The answer in all of these movies is Doc Brown, but that's not they're not all Back to the Future movies. What? (laughs) I mean, the character that he might as well be playing in all of the movies in his IMDb should be Doc Brown. Oh, okay. Doc Brown would fit in everyone. Oh, well, um, are they but they're all movies. They're all movies. Yes. We're not going to find something like taxi in here. Nope. No taxi. No TV. All right. Well, I'm going to say Back to the Future. Okay, there's one. 
Who framed Roger Rabbit? There's two. The Adams Family. Three. And gosh, what else do I think that is? I mean, do I, do I want? Do I think there's more than one Back to the Future on that? Is the big question. Um, the big question. I'm gonna no. I'm gonna say, oh, what's the one? The remake, Angels in the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield. That's your fourth. Okay, that's my fourth. <laughs> uh, Back to the Future is one. You got that one right. He plays Doc Brown. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is two. He plays a sinister Doc Brown, Judge Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Adam's Family Values. Ah! 1993, he plays Uncle Fester Adam. Of course, because his part's uh, bigger or, in that one because he is yep. the whole romance. Yeah. He has the whole romance. Uh, and number four, Andy, he plays Professor Doc Brown Plum in Clue, 1985. <laughs> oh, God. That's, yeah, that's a good, that's a good list. Yeah, it is a good list, actually. All of them. Uh, that's a, that's a great list. Yeah. Um, so. Anyhow, that's that's Christopher Lloyd. I absolutely love Christopher Lloyd. He's got 242 credits, and I didn't even... He is in... Uh, it looks like he's credited in The Mandalorian Episode uh, Season 3, Episode 1. Oh, interesting. Okay. Check that out, right? So, busy, that's busy. Uh, on the way. Busy, busy, busy guy. Uh, love Doc Brown. Love what he does. Love the way he plays across time. I think he's fantastic. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, he, he works well playing the 1985 one. But then when we go back to 1955 and we meet him there, I mean, his hair's not quite as gray, but there still is that manic energy. And I love, like, when we first meet him in that period, how we get, like, he opens the door and he's got that crazy contraption on his head and he's trying to yeah. read Marty's thoughts. Like, it just, it, like, it, it fits so well for who this character is. Yeah, it does. And they don't belabor the mistaken identity trope, right? They don't belabor the that he's not going to believe Marty for very long like that. I think they could have made that a much more sort of a principal point of that part of the narrative in that second act. And I think it serves the movie that they don't that they don't linger like if he ends up buying it pretty quickly and we get to move on to the solving problems. And then, of course, we get the, the other relationships across time. We get parents across time and they actually play arguably the more interesting role. This is um, uh, Crispin Glover and, and Leah Thompson who play kind of the deadbeat parents in the opening timeline. Young, awkward people in high school in the 50s, and then very, very cool uh, parents in the end. Crispin Glover is such a quirky actor, and we haven't had a chance to talk about him often on this show. I feel like uh, Wild at Heart may be the only one, and that was a member bonus episode. But he's such a strange actor. Like, the way that he comes at his roles, it's always a little kind of askew. Like, there's something about him that just seems like he's, you know, he, like, almost more than Eric Stoltz, kind of wants to go down that road of quirky, weird sorts of performances. And I really enjoy that about him. And he brings such an interesting uh, kind of persona to George McFly uh, in in all three timelines. Like the way he laughs at the beginning, like I have I have mimicked that far too often in my life to the point of a great annoyance for my wife. But it just <laughs> like it, I don't know, I just find it so funny. <laughs> Do it. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. That's what yeah, I wanted. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Uh, so he's, he's great. And then when we go back and we meet him in the fifties, like, I don't know, I just, I buy him as that awkward teenager who isn't quite right. He like, he's a big fan of the science fiction. Uh, and he's um, <laughs> a little bit of a peeping Tom. Like he, he's awkward with women. He, you know, is afraid to stand up for himself and he works. Like I always buy him at, in that role. And so it's just, I don't know. I just have such a great time watching him that it's just, it's exciting to see, um, you know, Crispin Glover doing this. Well, it's so unpredictable. I feel like, how are you ever going to feel like, what, what is he going to do next? What could he possibly do next? I don't think there's ever really an answer. I think he is, yeah, <laughs> uh, Eric Stoltz, not on his best day, could come up with the the sort of wackadoo performance art that is Crispin Glover. I think in this movie, he is incredibly restrained. And uh, uh, according to, you know, Bob Gale and, and Zemeckis and their efforts uh, to direct him was to restrain him further. Like it was, it, he was a, a, a challenging actor to rein in across parts, particularly as the, the parent version of his character. So, um, I I really like him in this. I've seen his other, you think about his top four, is Back to the Future, Alice in Wonderland. He was uh, Knave of Hearts, Willard. Um, I, were you a fan of Willard, 2003? I, I have not seen either version of it. Crispin Glover's Rat movie and uh, River's Edge. Um, but he has certainly done some other stuff in his 72 credits, other stuff that we've seen. Um, I would not call myself a Crispin Glover uh, aficionado. At this point, well, and it's funny because uh, it it sounds like uh, Zemeckis wasn't super thrilled with a lot of the way that he played his his performance, and so the, although that's and we'll talk about this more probably in the next episode when we're looking back to the future too because he's not in it, right? Um, we'll talk a lot about kind of the interesting things that arose with that, but uh, it does seem like yeah, it just I, I think that he was looking to do something a little more unique and i i think that um zemeckis didn't seem to be as happy with that how about leah thompson she's just so sweet i mean she's just such a sweet character in the film it, she works so well in the 50s and i buy her as this teenager who is like you know sneaking the booze and the cigarettes and like the way that she yeah. reacts to him as being such a square like it's i don't know i i think that she's adorable in this role very easy to fall in love with and uh, you know she's somebody who was very popular at the time and really kind of dropped out of film um i i think I don't know, shortly after this because of, um, I think because really, because she had her, her kids and everything. And so, yeah, I mean, she still pops up and stuff, but has had a much kind of slower run of, of her kind of career, um, after having a big period in the eighties with, I remember stuff like this and Howard the Duck and some kind of wonderful and casual sex. And, uh, you know, like all of those things in the eighties that were such a key part, Red Dawn even, um, oh, like sure. she was just so busy, uh, back yeah, then. Yeah, she was a, a leading lady of the eighties. I think she's, she's really fantastic. The, uh, and that she ends up having, like, she's married to Howard, uh, Deutsch, Deutsch and, yeah. uh, Zoe Deutsch and, Madeline Deutsch, her kids, uh, both in the business. Zoe was in, uh, yeah, she was in, what did we talk about on the film board? The Zombieland Double Tap, right? Yes, she was in Double Tap. Um, she's got 36 credits to her name. She's um, she's certainly been, been around doing some 
awesome work herself. And so it's it's really fun to, to see what Leah Thompson has has kind of created, not just her own body of work, which is significant. Um, and she's still, you know, actively working. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently she was in, I didn't listen to it, but Marvel's Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable radio show podcast. Did you listen to that? No, but I, I mean, I've heard, yeah, I listened to the, um, the Logan podcast that they did. I've yeah. heard, I mean, they've, they're doing a great good. job with their podcasts, but uh, I haven't listened to a lot of them. Uh, the only thing questionable, the only, largely the only thing questionable in this movie is her age makeup uh, on both sides. I sometimes wonder what they were thinking. Like her cheeks don't play for me. I, I I don't mind it. It's not a it's not a problem so much for me. Uh, but I I can see you know where someone would have issues with it. Yeah. Well, she's so good as a progressive fifties teen. I just love her. They talk a little bit about that with age makeup. That it's a lot easier to go a lot older when you're only going up into the to the fifties. You know, for somebody, it's actually more challenging because it's much subtler. Yes. And so the work that they have to do, they have a little bit more of a challenging time kind of um kind of finding the right level to to change someone's age. Well, I think she's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well anybody else hot on your list of performances? Well, I think the other two that are are key to talk about, yeah, absolutely, Biff. We got to talk about uh, Thomas F. Wilson, um, who is an actor who, I mean, I know he has been in things, but is so largely only Biff in my head. Like, you know, I know he does all sorts of stuff, but he's he's pretty much permanently going to be Biff forever in my head. Um, he appears in all three films um, as the character, and uh, I, I really enjoy seeing what he does. Um, so it's, it's fun. He's a fun actor uh, to see. So uh, Tom Wilson, and like I said, like Christopher Lloyd, he's one of those people who is always happy to pop up in other things like the ride at Universal things like that so he has been a voice in spongebob square span square pants for 21 years yeah and he's not a major voice right he just does all sorts of voices as I yeah recall. he does he's like a utility voice which is fantastic I had no idea would not have been able to pick him out i love him in this movie he is you're absolutely right he's always uh always going to be biff here i do get him uh, i i was surprised to see him show up in dc's legends of tomorrow he was um he is uh, the father of one of the characters uh, on the show and i uh really enjoy uh him and um but that's i mean i couldn't i couldn't pick out anything else that that he's done and his top 4 are all back to the future and the heat he was captain woods in the heat and i did not see the heat that's the uh, melissa mccarthy sandra bullock one yeah it's it's a very fun movie it's a very fun movie okay and uh, but it's funny because you say that i'm like gosh i i guess i wasn't thinking about him as the captain but yeah yeah i mean that's the thing he's become he's very much kind of a, a character actor and so he's fun to watch claudia wells yeah, Claudia Wells is another one that we should talk about. She plays Jennifer, Marty's girlfriend in 1985. And, uh, you know, she's fine in the part. It, what's interesting about her is she actually, uh, I think, originally had, she was offered the role and had to turn it down. And so they started filming 
with Eric Stoltz because uh, I think that she had already committed to she was doing a lot of those like after school specials I believe and I think she'd already committed to that they started filming with Stoltz and uh, and then the whole thing happened where they realized you know he's just not the right guy we need to find somebody else to come on board and so they they find Michael J. Fox who you know the challenge with him of course is that he was actively filming Family Ties during this whole thing and so he was often working all day on the studio uh, uh, set filming that show and then they'd pick him up in a car drive him over to Universal lot and he'd film here and so he was like working very long days which is just crazy to me that he uh, you know was able to kind of pull that off but um yeah but he did but anyway she uh the they ended up needing to find somebody else to play Jennifer opposite him and um because I guess I, I can't remember what happened with the other girl but her schedule had opened up, Claudia's schedule, and and when they re-offered it to her, she was available, so she came on board. And um, but it was only in this film, and we'll talk about that more next time as to why. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's I think she works fine as the girlfriend. Um, I, it, she's just not given a whole lot to do though. But it's it's interesting, just kind of only for that reason, really. Well, the character, uh, the woman who had it before was Melora Hardin, and we know her because she was uh, she was um, Michael Scott's boss at at corporate in the office, and she uh, she apparently was very very tall next to Michael J. Fox, who's five five, and uh, that didn't that didn't play. Uh, so when they recast the part, she was she was out too. Yeah, apparently they polled the crew about that. Yeah, the the crew, the female crew, like that's that's the part. It was the the women on the crew said, yeah, she needs to be not as tall. She can't not be that tall. tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So strange. Why don't they do the Tom Cruise thing and just constantly make him stand on apple boxes? <laughs> I mean, she's hardly in it. Like, why why does it matter so much? But right. Oh well. <laughs> Uh, I love the other, like the supporting characters that fill out the stuff. Uh, Mark McClure and Wendy Jo Sperber as Marty's uh, brother and sister. You've got the other interesting uh, members of Biff's group, uh, like Casey Samasco and Billy Zane. And uh, so it's it's kind of fun to see the characters and, and the way that they play that. And of course, James Tolkien as the principal and, and how that will be a joke that um, plays well um, over the course of the trilogy. So, yeah. Uh, it's it's a great group, great cast, and uh, yeah, they they do they just do a great job with it. One of the things I know we're going to have to talk about is the are the the key sequences that are reproduced, right? Movie over movie over movie, and yeah. w- you know one of the central ones is the chase through the park. Like the chase is is awesome and ends in the you know slamming into Biff ends slamming the car into the truck of manure and I. I really love the chase. I love the use of skateboard in 1955, ripping the the top off of the scooter and and using it as a skateboard, introducing skateboards to uh, this tiny community. And, you know, we'll see. Maybe that's the ripple effect that we end up seeing in, well, in the next <laughs> and that's, movie. And that's a time travel thing that I always wonder about. It's like, yeah. it's all, it's, you know, as long as it relates to his parents, it seems to be something that affects the future. But things like that, like introducing rock and roll to this group. I mean, obviously he becomes the person that introduces Chuck Berry to the sound that he's been looking for. Um, but like nothing comes of the fact that he's now introduced skateboarding to uh, the world back in 1955. Yeah. It's like those little things. Very that's like... selective pebbles <laughs> in the pond. Very selective. Right, right, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a that's a pebble that drops into the river of time and makes no mark, like right. none. It's like uh, clearly there are parts of Hill Valley that just it never quite makes it out of the town borders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but uh, you know, I do. Are there any of those scenes that you feel like we should bookmark here that are your anchors for future conversation? For me, that's the chase. Well, it's it's the chase through, and, and I mean, we haven't even mentioned just the insane recognition that we'll have with this location because it's Universal's town square that has been used yeah. in so many films. It's just such a prominent location. Gremlins is the other one that always comes to mind with it. But yeah, I mean, I think it's critical to pay attention to the town square chase. And then also it's going to be huge for us to talk about the dance because the dance in like in the second film becomes a critical recurring moment when Marty again comes back to the same time and has to go through the whole thing with Biff. And so that's where we get Marty and Marty yes. dealing with the whole thing. And so it's just, it's fun to see these layers that they start creating with time travel. Once we get to that point. Uh, I do love to clock all of the make like a make like a tree and get out of here. All of Biff's stupid insults. That's the best. Like, it must be fun coming up with Biff's lines. OK, what's a great saying and how can we have Biff screw it up? Right. What <laughs> do you yeah, think that's something of how they did? Lot. Make, like a, this is make a... like a tree and get out of here. <laughs> it's like screen doors on a battleship. <laughs> that's out for next week, but it's one of my favorites. Um, what do you think about how how tightly they ended up writing the affections between Lorraine and Calvin in the 50s? It's fine. It's it's cute. It's it's the whole moment. I mean, that was the impetus that she clearly needed to fall for whoever it was who she was going to marry, because it ha it was supposed to be um, George and Marty goes and screws it up by saving him from getting hit by the car. And so clearly she was just in a place and he already was, you know, in smitten with her uh, but that would have been the thing and so she clearly was just in a space like she just was ready for love and and so it actually i think in the the way that this their their current future plays it actually is a stronger more romantic uh story and i think that's a, a critical part of what we get in kind of like the way things ended up changing it is strange to me. I, I think it's I think it's fine. I think they wrote it as close to creepy as they could without it going too far over that edge. And we yeah, need yeah. that kind of edge of your seat sort of cultural line to to feel that anxiety in the theater. Um, and and so I think it's I think that's fine. The the challenge that I have, again, with the sort of sloppy uh, attention to time travel rules, this one is actually in dealing with the parents and yet we have zero recognition when uh you know in the future that the parents ever recognized this guy you know calvin in the past and i always wanted that to to be somehow reconciled that these people now have a son who looks exactly like this this guy that they knew in high school for a brief time, who made a big impact. Well, he made a big impact. And that's, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing because he was only there for a week. and But clearly, but he there, was central to how he, they ended up meeting he, and getting he was married. Central. Yeah. So part of their story is now, well, there was that kid. What was that guy? Well, they obviously named the, this kid after him. 
Um, so they obviously remembered yeah. him. But uh, yeah, it's but, a like it's if I thing. were if I were George McFly, I would constantly wonder if my wife had an affair with Calvin from in 1955 at some point, like they got back together in some place because he sure looks a lot like this other guy is all I'm saying. <laughs> it's the old just, like time traveling milkman. But the trope. thing the thing about it is they like they might remember him but i think because he was only in their lives for a week he wasn't in any photos like there's no yearbook photo right. of him like True. it's one of those faces that is probably going to fade and they're probably going to forget about what that guy looked like and i just don't think that there's going to be a lot okay. of remembrance about that so i don't know that's right. one of those that's things fair. i don't worry about too much that's fair <laughs> that's pretty good all right this was um, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale wrote this. They actually started working on this script uh, a while before this, like back in the late 70s, early 80s. They were trying to come up with with something. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had already been doing some projects and stuff. Um, and I, I don't know, Robert Zemeckis, where, where do you stand on Zemeckis as a director? Are you a big fan of of the films of his? Yeah, I mean, generally, like his he started his first film was I Want to Hold Your Hand. That was the one um, it's well, it's it's where all the group of kids um, are trying to like chase after the Beatles, basically, is what it is. Yeah, I didn't see it. It's a great movie. I mean, I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's definitely one that's worth checking out. And then he did Used Cars, Romancing the Stone. And then this. I mean, are you, uh, would you say from like those early films, had you had you seen any of those before you saw Back to the Future? Romancing the Stone yeah. uh, was uh, w- I had seen, but I, you know, this was at a time where I wasn't taking didn't real know, yeah. stock of right. of directors, and so Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, um, you know, I I don't know, it, probably Who Framed Roger Rabbit and the other two Back to the Future movies, I started kind of becoming aware in the late eighties and not early nineties, and then Forrest Gump, I was I I know I was I was aware. I didn't, I mean, I saw Death Becomes Her. I didn't, I probably didn't make. I didn't have a strong opinion about Death Becomes Her. It's, again, very effects-heavy sort of yeah. thing. And that that became, for me, the thing that I recognized about Robert Zemeckis is he was a filmmaker who uh, really, not so much Romancing the Stone, but certainly with these films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Contact, like everything really seems like, how can I tell the story using all the latest and greatest tools, like the technological yes. tools to kind of do fun things with and contact what lies beneath, uh, which isn't really an effects heavy movie. But then you get shots where the camera drops down below the floor as, as Michelle Pfeiffer like falls on the floor, paralyzed or whatever. It's like he clearly is finding ways to kind of play with what with his stuff. And so I, I think when you look at something like Back to the Future, you get a sense of that that person who could, you know, take those sorts of stories and do big stuff with it. And, uh, and so I, I think it in very much a real sense, this feels like kind of the kickoff to what I would expect future Robert Zemeckis films to be like, I don't get as much of a sense of that from I Want to Hold Your Hand 1941. Maybe 1940. Well, he he wrote that for Spielberg, but used cars. Romancing the Stone is very romantic, and it's certainly a fun action adventure film. But it doesn't feel like the sorts that he would do later. When how can I incorporate as much special effects into this to tell the story as possible? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And I and you know, Polar Express has become a staple. As weird as some of those shots are, but and, and some of that CG Uncanny Valley stuff is, that is a staple in our house. Like it's it yeah, is a lovely lovely. 
Christmas film. So uh, I think that string of movies, of, of Zemeckis movies, right, when you go from For- uh, Forrest Gump, uh, after Death Becomes Her, which, I, again, I didn't think very much of, Forrest Gump, Contact, Castaway, Polar Express, even uh, Beowulf, but then Flight and The Walk. So, like, his 90s, 2000s uh, films, I, every one of them I enjoy uh, quite a bit. No, I think I think he's an interesting filmmaker. I, I feel like, uh, you know, he did his little um, mocap period in the aughts with Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol. And then, uh, like, with Flight, he seemed like he was getting back on track to do some interesting films. Um, but I feel like he kind of, I don't know, I, I don't feel like he's completely found the right path moving forward like the flight i enjoyed but mostly it's because of the plane crash mm-hmm. uh which is insane and it's incredibly put together the walk i don't know if that story like the documentary was fine i don't know if that story needed to be told it was a fine film but i think largely it's again for the effects of doing that 3d up on that high wire allied meh you know it didn't it just didn't do much and uh then welcome tomorrow and which is terrible the witches was fine uh, but I, I again, I, I think maybe it's just the era. Like, I feel like that's one that probably just kind of disappeared because of straight to streaming and stuff with COVID. And now he's doing the Pinocchio uh, with Disney and Tom Hanks. And so I don't know. I just I don't know. Like, I just don't feel like he's capturing the same stuff anymore. And it could just be, you know, he's an older filmmaker and isn't isn't trying to do those fun sorts of films anymore. I, I don't I don't know. I just don't get a sense of the stuff now, like the last decade and a half that I was getting back in the 80s and 90s from him. Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes of these uh, latest performances. I don't know, the, the li- Pinocchio, only because I'm I'm not crazy about all of the live action stuff that Disney's doing. Well, and that's one that is just, there have been so many Pinocchios you know, uh, like, I just, I'm like, do we need that many more Pinocchios? Because it's the same year Guillermo del Toro has his animated uh, Pinocchio that's coming out. And then we just had an Italian Pinocchio that was uh, nominated for an Oscar mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Um, and I just, I don't know, it's, it's a story. I'm like, are are we needing that many Pinocchio stories out there right now? Like, it's it's a fine story, but I just don't, I don't know. I feel like, you know, one is enough. Let's yeah. move on. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, People are right. so latched on to right. it. Uh, anything else hot on your list? I feel like that's kind of hitting uh, most of the big things, so uh, we will re- be right back. But first, here's the credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Yevgeny Bargusha, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at v-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imbb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it award season.
I guess you could say it was a success. It did well in the box office, and because of that, people recognized it as something that uh, garnered some awards. 22 wins, 25 other nominations. At the Oscars, it won Best Effects Sound Effects Editing. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but lost to Witness. It was nominated for Best Sound, but lost to Out of Africa. And it was nominated for Best Original Song for The Power of Love, but lost to Say You, Say Me from White Knights. Mm-hmm. Over at the Saturn Awards, it won Best Science Fiction Film, Best Actor for Michael J. Fox, and Best Special Effects. Uh, Both Crispin Glover and Christopher Lloyd were nominated for Supporting Actor, but perhaps canceled each other out. Uh, Roddy McDowell ended up winning that award for Fright Night. Boy, I have a hard time arguing that. I just love that. But I I still feel like I probably would pick Christopher Lloyd over all of them. Yeah. Um, Leah Thompson was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Anne Ramsey's in The Goonies. And I don't know about this one. uh, Robert Zemeckis lost Best Director to Ron Howard for Cocoon. I kind of feel like, you know, that's a, I I feel like I'd pick Zemeckis over Howard in that case. Me too. Best music, um, uh, Sherlock Holmes, the young Sherlock Holmes, Bruce Broughton's score beat out Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future. You know, it's a great score, but Alan Silvestri's is iconic. Iconic. I am shocked that that is the score that beat it. And uh, it was nominated for Best Costumes, but lost to Ladyhawk. The National Board of Review, they always have their list of 10 best films of the year. This was one of them, along with... This is an interesting list. I'm curious what you think of the list. Blood Simple. I think that's a good one to have on the list. Mm-hmm. Dream Child. Do you remember Dream Child? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> that wasn't a... That sounds like a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Dream Warrior, Dream Child. Wasn't that a dream? Wasn't that one of them? <laughs> Wasn't that the Dream Child? Not that Dream Child. This uh, Dream Child, let me just read you the synopsis on IMDb. Ian Holm is children's author Lewis Carroll in this poignant fantasy drama set in 1930s New York and populated by the fabulous special effects creatures of Muppet Master Jim Henson. <laughs> like, do you even remember this? No. I don't remember this movie at all. No, what the hell is that? It sounds like something that, like, with, you know, it's it's about Lewis Carroll and it has Muppets and stuff. It seems like something that would have been a family film that we would have seen, but it's like, nope, yeah. never, never even heard of that one. Nope, totally new. So that's Dream Child. Um, uh, we also have Kiss of the Spider Woman, fantastic, good choice. Out of Africa, sure. Princey's Honor, Honor, sure. The Color Purple, sure. Uh, Witness, sure. Those are all the best picture nominees too. The Shooting Party, are you? Do you remember the Shooting Party? Never. I don't remember the shooting, but never heard of it. That and Dream Child so far. The Shooting Party. While Europe stands on the brink of World War One in autumn 1913, Sir Randolph Nettleby hosts a weekend of shooting on his estate for European aristocrats. I see. It's literally a shooting party. It is a shooting party. Edward Fox is in it. James Mason. It sounds like uh, a sort of thing that would be recognized by an award thing. And last but not least, The Trip to Bountiful, which is something that I had heard of with uh, Geraldine Page. And uh, yeah, so it's it's an interesting list when you kind of look at the top 10 films that the National Board of Review said. Um, And then I just wanted to also shout out that Alan Silvestri did get a nomination for Best Album of Original Score, written for a motion picture or television special. It's actually for him and all the musicians over at the Grammys, but lost to Beverly Hills Cop. And again, it's one of those, this was 1985, Beverly Hills Cop is 1984. I'm not sure when the Grammys, how there's that overlap, but there it is. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I I also, Beverly Hills Cop has a pretty good score or uh, list of original music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, Alan Silvestri, though, did not win an award for this at all until 2010 when he won a, a Best New Release or Re-Release of an Existing Score Award at the International Film Music Critics Award. And it just 2010, like that's the first How time. How did people not take more notice of this score when it came out? That blows me away. I yeah I I'm I'm shocked by it uh, and it, I do wonder if it is because there was so much focus on the songs and the soundtrack yeah. that there wasn't that release like there was for ET or Star Wars things like that that would have helped people recognize it that's all I can think of I went in to the kitchen and I sang the main theme to the score to my wife who is n- n- not always the most attuned to main themes and she immediately said oh car time travel back to the future yeah like she got it this is a that that indicates this is a this is a big score to me if she can get it from me singing it yeah that's big it's big alan silvestri and zemeckis have worked together a lot a lot a lot a lot so um you know it makes sense that they like romancing the stone right before this they did together um, just out of curiosity, Alan Silvestri, what would you say are his IMDb known fors? Oh my goodness, Andy, how would I possibly this right? Well, okay, there's so there's one for you. I can't think of any other Alan Silvestri movies. Uh, can you give me a hint? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there are two on there that are Robert Zemeckis movies. Are they? One you've they, already mentioned. <laughs> is it Back to the Future 2? No. Oh, uh, Forrest Gump? Uh, well, that's one of them. And the other one that you watch every year, Perennial Classic. Oh, Polar, Polar, Express. Polar Express. Polar Express. Probably because there are okay. a lot of songs in that one. And the other two are Marvel films. <gasps> oh, right. How many Marvel films has he done? Um, well, he did these two and then one, two more. So only four. Okay, um, do, were uh, mm, 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 mm. I'll say uh, we've only because we're talking about the movie right now. I'm gonna say Captain America: First Avenger. Correct. That is one of them. Oh, that's one of them. Oh, good. Okay, that is one of them. Yeah. Then I'll go. Then I'll go, I'll stick with that. Then um, I think that's safe. And the Avengers. Okay, the first Avengers. All right. Well, yes, yeah, the Polar Express, Captain America, the first Avenger, Forrest Gump, and Avengers Endgame. Oh, Endgame. Interesting. Well, a lot of the themes, I think, are in there that I like, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean he that did, Avengers theme is he, he awesome. Did, he did three of the four Avengers movies. He did not do Age of Ultron. Because he, he's the one behind da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? That's yeah. his? Yep, that's his. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Awesome, awesome theme. Right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of his that he's done with Zemeckis? I mean, again, he started with Zemeckis back in the in the early days uh, with uh, Romancing the Stone. I, I mean, just because it's the one that jumps to mind, I'm going to, of course, say Polar Express that like da, 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 da. I mean, it's just beautiful. I kind of would end up leaning to Back to the Future, Forrest Gump and Polar Express are probably the three that I think have the strongest themes that really hold you know i think that those ones are are ones that are very very effective so all right how to do at the box office andy
Uh, well, Zemeckis had 19 million to make this little time travel movie, which is 45.2 million in today's dollars. The movie had a wide release July 3rd, 1985, opening the Wednesday before the Independence Day holiday, but late in the week, so it ended up actually in eighth place that week behind the other new releases, Pale Rider and St. Elmo's Fire, which were really just there because they had more days to play on the screens. But the following week, Back to the Future took the number one spot, which it held until October 4th, 12 weeks, except for two weeks in there where it dropped to the number two spot. That was when National Lampoon's European Vacation opened and when Invasion USA opened. It held strong at the box office, going on to earn $212.8 million domestically and $173.2 million internationally for a total gross of $918.9 million in today's dollars. That ended up making it the highest grossing film of 1985, and it lands the film with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $7.5 million. That's so many millions of dollars. So many millions. Per minute. Very successful little movie. Ugh. Hope they figured out how to green screen those hands with some of those monies. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it's just such a great film. I'm so glad we're, we're adding this trilogy to the list. Uh, I love the whole trilogy. Obviously, this one is the one that will always be my favorite of the whole trilogy, but it's just a fantastic set of films. So I'm thrilled that we are now adding it to our roster. Me too. All right, everybody, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Back to the Future, Part 2. Do you remember the future? You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. We're back. We're back. What do you mean we're in the future? October 21st, 2015. Marty, we're going to be able to see our wedding. Wow. Future. I got to check this out, Doc. Look what happened oh. to your son. Oh. He's a complete wimp. Don't talk to anyone. You've been looking. Kayla! No. Don't touch anything. I need to borrow your hoverboard. And try not to look at anything. I didn't invent the time machine to win at gambling. I can't lose. I invented a time machine to travel through time. Hey, Doc, I'm all for that. What's wrong with making a few bucks on the side? Now, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating an alternate 1985. There have been a few changes. It's like we're in hell or something. No, it's Hill Valley, although I can't imagine hell being much worse. But they'll all be back. Eat lead slackers! Biff? Hello? Hello, anybody home? Why they can't be you? You're so big. Michael J. Fox. Christopher Lloyd. Michael J. Fox. More like a couple of teenagers, you know? And Michael J. Fox. Mom, is that you? Steven Spielberg presents a Robert Zemeckis film, Back to the Future, Part 2, coming November 22nd to theaters everywhere. All right, what are you going to do with Letterboxd, Andy? You know Letterboxd. 
You've, I mean, you've been on there before. Letterboxd is a fantastic place where you can rate and log your movies and review them and hang out with other reviewers. If you want to upgrade your account, you can do it over at thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. Get 20% off new or renewed accounts. So where do you put this movie? Three stars, quibbles? <laughs> this, it has always been a five-star and a heart film for me. Just such an easy film to love. I love it to pieces, and there it shall remain. It is an unqualified five-star and a heart movie for me, too, and it actually is easier to remain five stars and a heart than some of our recent franchise discussions that we've talked about. I'm interested to see how parts two and three have aged with you as well. I am curious with you, Pete, if you only can rank five films on your letterboxd and they are mm-hmm. <laughs> they are Back to the Future, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Paddington and Paddington 2, how would you rank those five, four, three, two, and one star? <laughs> I can't I how would you even do that? I might consider just drop like stop watching movies. <laughs> just I've yeah. run out of stars. It puts it, it puts you in a very difficult place. But that's the challenge of only ranking five films and you have to do them one, yeah. two, three, four, five stars. That's right. This is why I am thrilled to know that you decided that that was not the way to go as far as ranking your films. Uh, well, I'd let's just say right now the jury, the jury's still out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, don't forget to visit the slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. As Pete said, it works for renewals as well. All right. That's great. I'm glad we're in the middle of it. We're in the heat of it. Let's let's get to number two. Yes, we are in the heat of it, as Pete said. So what did you think about Back to the Future? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Okay, do you want, you want to go? Who talks first? You go, do you talk you go first? first. Do it. Okay, do it. this is from Is Issy. Uh, Issy Kiwi emoji, who says, uh, how was Jennifer just like totally cool with all that at the end? Some old man her boyfriend's always hanging out with, with no explanation, just crashes his weird rocket car that came out of nowhere into the bins and gets out dressed like he's going to an office Christmas party and starts pushing banana peels into this, quote, fusion thing he's built for the engine and tells them they have to come back to the future because something's got to be done about your kids. And she just gets in the car. Jennifer, sweetie, please take care of yourself. Edit. Oh, my God, I'm watching the second one, and it seems she did wise up because there's a whole new Jennifer proud of her. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. Well, I'm doing Angela Faraguto's five star where Angela decided to rank Doc's faces, which I think is pretty <laughs> funny. The number one ranking of Doc's faces, number one, Lorraine, quote, I followed you when, when he reacts to uh, finding out that Lorraine followed Marty home back to his place. <laughs> number two, Marty scooting during Einstein's test run, which is great, pushing him out of the way. Yes. Number three, when the plug pulls again. <laughs> that that would be my number one, honestly. So number, good. Number four, toy car lights pile of rags on fire. That's also pretty funny. Also awesome. Number five, pencil in mouth. And number six, you fell off the toilet and bumped your head. 
<laughs> That's actually pretty good. That is pretty good. Good stuff. Thank you, Sletterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.